Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Tonight we, we get to actually hear a prophecy of Jonah. We had mentioned earlier that uh, there is no real prophetic word throughout the, except for one thing that is said by Jonah to the Ninevites. When Jonah finally comes around to understand the calling that God gave him. And how he came about to, to understand that was, of course, that he had run away from God. But every time we run away from God, we are actually running into him. We can't escape him. Because he cares too much about what he's called us to do. And if we don't care, he still does. And it took the Lord having to cause a tremendous and tempestuous storm to take place so that the boat that he was traveling on to get to Tarshish was just about to break into pieces. And had he not done what he knew he had to do, which was admit to the very fact that what was happening was because of his sin against his God, he would have taken everyone on board with him. And that kind of reminds us how much sin does not just affect one person. How iniquity doesn't just happen to one person and not ever affect anybody else. It affects a lot of people. And as he desired for these sailors to throw him overboard, God had transportation already set up. And a great fish swallowed Jonah. Jesus attests to it. Calls it a great calls it a whale. And for three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of this fish. It's not a comfortable ride. Nothing is ever comfortable when we're dying. Nothing's ever comfortable when we're dying to self. Especially when we have rebelled against God in the calling that he's given us. And as I mentioned, it is very possible that in those three days and three nights that Jonah really did die. To, to set the sign for Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. On the breaking of the fourth day, after three days and three nights, Jonah cried out to God. Chapter 2. He cried out to God in repentance. And God heard him. He not only heard him once, he heard him twice. We're told that he heard him twice. That's, that's important. It's significant. God hears us. And he's not casual to the hearing. He really hears us. And he really cares. That's why Peter said, cast your cares upon him, because he careth for us. Where else are we going to cast our cares? Where else do we cast our concerns? You know, we, we, can, we can ask people to pray for us. We should and we do. 
And for many of us, we're on that receiving end of prayer. We're, we're, we're being asked to pray for people. And that's okay. We're called to pray with others. We're called to intercede for others. But we have to realize the importance of being alone with God. And, no, and, and, and Jonah was alone with God. And God showed him the terrors of hell. It was as if he held him over hell and said, this is where those sailors would have been. This is where the Ninevites will be. Eternally separated from me. When all was said and done, Jonah was delivered. The whale spewed him out. In fact, the language is pretty graphic. It vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. We find in verse 1 of chapter 3 the words, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. You know, I, I, I kind of like that, that phrase. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Because sometimes we're just not good at listening the first time. But when the Lord is determined to use us, and no one else in a specific calling, he'll speak to us a second time. This, of course, after now Jonah has... <laughs> He spent time with his maker. He spent time looking at the horrors of separation from God and eternal, eternal punishment. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I, I am very confident in saying that there isn't one of us in this room today that wouldn't want a second opportunity or a second chance, if you will, at redeeming or, or, or proving ourselves before the Lord for having done something we regretted or failed to do something in, in disobedience to Him. None of us wouldn't want to have that second opportunity. In this present scripture, Jonah the prophet gets that second chance, if you will, that second opportunity to redeem himself and to serve the Lord as he had been chosen and called initially. We know that when the Lord first called him, the prophet foolishly fled from the Lord, rebelling against God's call and outright refusing to do what God commanded. But when God disciplined Jonah, the prophet wisely repented. Of his rebellion. The Lord was then ready to give Jonah a new beginning, a fresh start. Another opportunity was granted to obey the Lord and fulfill his calling and ministry. Our God is often called the God of second chances, but in reality, he truly is the God of a new life and the God of a new beginning. I don't know about you, but I, I certainly sometimes think that, you know, when, when we, we kind of go through certain routines in our life, it just it seems old. It's, 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 
you know, with, with the Lord, nothing's ever old, you know, and he, and he wants us always to be new and to think new and to believe in the, in the newness of life that he's given us. But there are those times when we, all, we just get into a rut. And we just go through the motions of life or we go through the motions of ministry. It's even then, whether we're, you know, I'm sure that we haven't gotten as far as Jonah had gotten away from God, but, but just, just in that sense of, of, of realizing that every day God will let you know that he's a God of new life. He wants us to know that he's given us a new day with a new opportunity to breathe new air, new life. And to begin afresh and to begin anew as, you know, the ministry that, that, that the Lord has given us. Whatever that ministry is. So after suffering one of the most horrendous disciplines imaginable, Jonah was humbled to the depths of his own soul and, and, and stirred to serve the Lord with, with this renewed vitality. When you think of it, you don't, you don't have to read the scriptures very far before you discover that God forgives his servants and restores them to the ministry. You don't have to raise your hand if you're in any active ministry, but, uh, and, and I wouldn't want you to raise your hand on this, this point, but how many of you have really sought the Lord for that very restoration? Because you refused to do what the Lord wanted you to do. I think most of us, if not all of us, have been at that point. The Lord hasn't forgotten us. So he forgives us. And he restores us. Consider that Abraham fled to Egypt. Where he lied about his wife. But the Lord gave him another opportunity. Consider Jacob who lied to his father Isaac, but God restored him and used him to build the nation of Israel. Consider Moses who killed a man, probably in self-defense, but nonetheless he killed a man and, and covered it up, If at least he thought he did. He killed a man and he fled Egypt, but God called him to be the leader of his people and sends him back to Egypt. And then consider the Apostle Peter, who denied the Lord Jesus three times. But Jesus forgave him. And eventually he would say to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Personally, I am so thankful to the Lord that he gives us that opportunity again. And sometimes again. And again. And sometimes Again and again. Now, no matter how encouraging these examples of restoration may be, they, they must never be used. They must never be used as excuses for sin. You cannot say, I can go ahead and sin because I know the Lord will forgive me. It's not a good attitude to have. It's definitely not a spiritual attitude to have. It's a very fleshly attitude. To say, that, to say that is to show that person has no understanding of the awfulness of sin or of the holiness of God. I, re I really think that, that th those two things are lost in the modern church today. They're lost in the emerging church scenario. They're lost in, in these liberal new age, new agey type churches where they really don't want to talk a lot about sin and they don't, they don't want to talk about so much the holiness of God, but what you can be with your Christ consciousness, which is more language that you find in, in worldly and uh, spiritualistic religions than, than the church of Jesus Christ. And primarily that happens because the word of God is no longer read. It's no longer believed. It's no longer taught. It's, it's no longer trusted in. 
But there is an awfulness of sin. And there is a holiness of God that needs to be known and it needs to be understood by every believer in Jesus Christ. You would think that that's an obvious. An obvious thing. That every believer, well, every believer should know in the holiness of God. But it's how you approach God. Is God high and lifted up in your life? And have we developed a, a, a real distaste for, for any kind of sin that would offend the God that we serve, that would offend the God that we love and that loves us? There's a beautiful verse of Scripture in Psalm 130, verse 4, that says, But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou, is, that thou mayest be feared. You have, you have to look at, at, the, at, the, at the context of this particular phrase. There's forgiveness with God. That we might fear him. The forgiveness isn't a matter of saying, oh boy, thank you, Lord. Boy, I don't have to worry about whatever, you know, uh, punishment there is or, or whatever the consequences are going to be for that sin. No. There's forgiveness with God so that we might fear him we might bow ourselves toward him, that we might humble ourselves, that we might say in our own hearts, Lord, I, I, I never want to go back to where I was. I never want to go back and do the thing that offended you in the first place. There may be other things I might do, but Lord, I don't even want to do that. All I want to do is honor you, bless you with my life. In my flesh, I'll, I'll fail But when I'm faithless, you're faithful. Lord, you're always faithful. There's forgiveness with God. But his forgiveness is extended to us that we might fear him and worship him and honor him and reverence him and respect him all the more. Always remember that Jonah paid dearly. He paid dearly for rebelling against the Lord. So God in his grace forgives our sins, but, but God in his government determines that we shall reap what we sow. And the harvest can be very costly as it was for Jonah. It can be very costly. So at that moment in, in Jonah's time, God began to speak to him. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Go tell them what I was going to tell them through you the first time. Go give them the message. Not the message, you know, the terrible Bible translations. The message of God. The very fact that the word of the Lord came to Jonah lets us know God restored the prophet. You see, there's restoration. Now there's a second confronting and a second commissioning from the Lord to Jonah. He was now to go to Nineveh and proclaim God's message to the people. Above all, Jonah was not to state his own personal thoughts. Jonah was not called to state his own opinions, nor those of anyone else. He was to preach only one message, the message of God, the word of God itself to the Ninevites. That was the message. And Jonah obeyed the Lord. Verse 3 says, so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh. What did we see in chapter 1? Jonah got up and ran from God and wanted to go as far away as he could, as he thought he could. But no, Jonah arose here in chapter 3, verse 3, and he went unto Nineveh. 
He went according to the word of the Lord. That is how we are called to go. Not according to our thoughts or our opinions or our ways or even our desires. There are people today who think, you know, ministry is is, is as easy as just saying, well, you know, I like what that guy's doing. I want to do what he's doing. But is that what God wants you to do? Is Is that how God wants you to serve him? Too often it's so much easier just to look at somebody else and say, you know, I can do that or I can do this. Well, there's no prayer involved in that. There's no seeking of the face of God in in any of that. All there is is just, well, you know, pick and choose from one day to the next. I remember years and years ago, there were people, you know, that we would meet in house meetings and prayer meetings during the Jesus movement when there was, you know, there was still some, you know, ministries forming at the time and and all and... and, uh, Bible studies being held in the house, house uh, homes and meet on Fridays, you know, and, and stay till one, two in the morning singing songs of praise unto the Lord, you know, just having a wonderful time doing all of these things. But there were people there that would, would just say, you know what, you know, I, I like what they're doing. I'm going to go start my own ministry like that. You know, the first, the, the first thought that came to mind was, well, did you pray about that? I mean, is this, is this what God is calling you to do? Well, I'm pretty sure he, he's going to call me to do it. They will go out and do some kind of a ministry, and then the next week they're doing something else. What I see that as is wasting God's time, right? wasting their time, and saying it is God's, you know, God's doing. No, God doesn't do that. You know, God is very clear when he calls us to something. And our hearts have to, have to be you know, wise and understanding. So you do things according to the word of the Lord, not, not according to our own feelings, you know, thoughts. You know. Today I feel like doing this. I feel like doing that. If you live your life that way, then you're not living according to the word of God. It says, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. Nineveh was a, a major city in the time of Jonah. Even though it was yet to become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. From, from, from Israel, Nineveh was about 550 miles to the east. The text calls it a, a, an exceeding great city of three days journey, which means that the city was so large that it either took three days to pass through it or it took three days to travel around it. Now, more than likely, the city included all the suburbs of the metropolitan area surrounding Nineveh. Now, according to scripture, Nimrod founded three other cities located close to Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, and Rezin. In Genesis 10, verses 10 through 12, it says, In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, the same is a great city. So you notice all of these little kind of like suburbs, are, are, are all around Nineveh, but notice that it says the same as a great city. So even the language here in the scripture points out that it's probably this whole region together that is considered all of Nineveh. I suppose if you come from California, that's, that's how you say, you know, you, people say immediately and very generally speaking, oh, yeah, we're from Los Angeles. Really? Right in the city of Los Angeles? Oh, no, no, we're at, you know, this place or that place. You know, we're we're in Pacoima or wherever, you know. Is anybody from Pacoima here? No, no. Okay. Pomona, you know, something like that. But but it's all, you know, it's in the same region, you know. So, well, we're from Los Angeles. It's it's big, you know. So it's, It's all connected, right? So, all right. I don't go to California much anymore. Really... Don't want to, but that's okay. The Lord has his people there, and that's good. It was to this great city that the Lord sent Jonah to preach his word. And as hard as it is for us to sometimes swallow, God loved the Ninevites. He didn't love what they did. He doesn't love what we do when it's against, you know, goes against his word. But he loves us. He loved the Ninevites. Long for them to repent of their horrible sin. 
and wickedness. While also wanting them to trust him. He created them. He would want them to trust him. Brings to mind those well-known words we know by heart. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. No, the Lord is, the Bible tells us the Lord is angry at sin every day. But I wouldn't want to draw that picture of saying, you know, well, he's angry at sin every day, and so he's just like some people that draw him as, as one that's going to throw lightning bolts at anybody that does one really bad thing and just, you know, get you. Or say, well, you're not mine anymore. Because that, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't fit the character of our God, who made us his children, by the way. But when it comes to the Loving the world, he's, he doesn't love the system. He doesn't love the sin. He loves the sinner. He loves the sinner. God called us to love the sinner. And that was the dilemma with Jonah. He hated the Ninevites. <laughs> really hated them. Hated what they did, what they represented. And for him... Wipe them all out, Lord. God has a different plan, doesn't he? Now the message that was given to Jonah by the Lord to preach and proclaim was was a short, simple, and succinct message. Going back to verse 4, it says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and he said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was it. That was, by the way, that's the prophecy. That's the only prophecy in this this book. Eight words in English. Five words in Hebrew. And yet, obviously, spiritually powerful. Spiritually powerful. Yet 40 days. And Nineveh Nineveh shall be overthrown. We're not told that he said anything else. We could conjecture. We can, you know, suppose that he may have said other things. The Lord doesn't choose to put anything else in this message. This is it. By the way, this is considered the shortest of all prophecies in the scripture. Eight words. And so this then was the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah added no padding to his message. He didn't want to say to the Lord, you know, I'm glad he didn't, but he didn't want to say to the Lord, well, you know, Lord, you know, let me, let me kind of, let me kind of help you here. I mean, these are eight words. We can build around that. Put an extra adjective here and an extra emphasis here and there. He added no padding to his message. There were no fancy illustrations. It wasn't like some of the other prophets that was that were you know that you know were told like Isaiah was told to do certain things and Jeremiah was and Ezekiel they were all to do certain things to give it a little illustration to the people what God was going to do because of their sin. No, no fancy illustrations here. Most importantly, Jonah made no effort to be diplomatic about it. This was a blunt message, and it was as blunt a message that could be given to any people. I mean, let's face it, you talk about gloom and doom. This was it. The prophet made no attempt to dilute the message. He gave it as God gave it. He didn't promise any sort of alleviation, uh, lessening of judgment in the case of 
National repentance? None of that is stated. And yet it has to be said that Jonah's message was was a blessed message. It was a blessed one to say the least because as a result of his one man, one day crusade, a massive revival did break out in the doomed city. You know, I've read some commentaries where, you know, people are saying, well, now he went out and did this and he may have said a, a, a thousand other things, but, you know, this was just really the, the, the bare bones message and then he needed to clarify and add and this and that so they're they're adding to something that that we're given here as, as a just a clear little statement and then they would have to say that uh, well now the Ninevites you know they were receiving this but because uh, you know they were hearing this one guy that looked by the way as, as white as snow because he was bleached because of you know how the gastric juices of that that fish had you know changed his whole complexion and all and so uh they were just kind of acting for the moment so we can't say that because that's not what the text tells us it has to be said that the prophet's most eloquent message was simply himself Notwithstanding the fact that Jonah may have looked like a ghost come out of nowhere, he actually became a living epistle to be known and read by all men in that strange pagan land. And he says eight words. What do we say? When faced with the opportunity to speak as God gives us the opportunity to the lost, to the unsaved, to the one that is highly volatile and against God. The message was not texted. The message was not sent out in bulk email or recorded on YouTube. Definitely not on Facebook because for the most part it would have been not only unlike, but they'd have thrown Jonah off the server. Paul, the apostle, tells the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 5, he said, do do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Do, Do we just need letters, you know, to state what we're here for? who we represent, who we serve, commend ourselves. He says, ye, to the church, he says, ye are our epistle. You're our letter written in our hearts, known and read of all men. We are going to be read by the world. Jonah was read by the Ninevites. For he was there in obedience to God to give the message that God wanted him to give. Paul goes on and says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. 
That's how we go into the world. That's how we place ourselves out in the world to be seen. Not that we are seen, but that Christ is seen. That his word is given. That his light is projected. And that his salvation will be offered to those who need it. The people of Nineveh, as as many as there could have been, over a million people, it is said. But the people of Nineveh looked upon him and they listened to him. I think I'd listen to a guy that looked like a ghost. I think I would. But they may have seen the effects of of Jonah's sojourn in the whale's belly as a horrifying sight to behold and knowing that (laughs) that word may have already gotten around. You know, I mean, even in three days, news spread pretty quickly in those days without TV and radio and newspapers and everything else. Word got around. Got around of a guy on a submarine. A God-made submarine. He was a submariner spending three days and three nights in the great fish. And had they heard this particular message, you know what they would have thought? Here's a guy that had run away from God and now he... Now he's listening to God and God spewed him out on the land and now he's come all the way over here, hundreds of miles. But as we look at him, that tells us God does punish sin. But the fact that Jonah was alive may have probably caused him to add, but God must also pardon sinners. Whether that happened, we don't know, but in fulfilling his mission as a prophet, Jonah spoke with irresistible authority. You can do that if you only got eight words to say. But even if he had 800 words to say, the authority would come from God. The power to do so would come from the Holy Spirit. So he spoke with his irresistible authority as only prophets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit could do. And having been through death and burial, Jonah was now living in the power of resurrection life. That's why the the questions as to whether, well, you know, why why didn't they just kill Jonah when they saw him? Because they they knew he wasn't one of them. And they're pretty, you know, violent people anyway. And, and, and you know, they, they, they could have done this and that. All that doesn't matter. God was in control. And I wonder how many of us pray when we go out into the world to say, Lord, work your work, even when there is hostility. Work your work, that the word may be heard, that the word may be heard to to be received, and that the word in being received would change the hearts of those that we we see, those that we uh, minister to. Those that we are called to bring the gospel to. So again, one lesson that we can learn from Jonah is that we, we must never proclaim our own personal thoughts or our own opinions nor, nor those of anybody else's. Rather, we must proclaim God's holy word and his word alone. God's word must not be tampered with. It must not be added to nor taken away from uh, at all, not by any of us at, at any time. It should be a ministry that we should always fear if we think of messing with, with the message. Don't mess with the message that God gives you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 
We might say, well, that's a nice ministry that God is giving to, to Paul. Mine's a little different. What's so different about it? We've been given the same word. We've been given the same calling. Do the work of an evangelist. You may not have the gift of an evangelist, but you are to do the work of an evangelist, which means we are to all give forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know what it means. Know the importance of it in the lives of those that you speak to because someone at one time spoke to you when you knew nothing about Jesus, when you knew nothing about the gospel. And if you knew anything, it was nominal at best. God changed your life. And if God could change your life, he can change anybody's life by using you and me. Paul goes on to say, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, even if, I, if it's against my will, nonetheless, nonetheless, I have a dispensation of the gospel. And it's committed unto me. That should be clear to all of us. That the dispensation of the gospel is not just for evangelists. But it's for every believer in Jesus Christ. Consider Paul writing to the Galatians and saying in chapter 1 verses 6 to 10. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another but that there be some that trouble you and, and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel, folks. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news. It is the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not Jesus plus anyone or anything. It is Jesus and him alone. Paul goes on to say, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? How many people live today to please men and not to please God? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If it is all about serving men, and pleasing men, then at any point in time, there is no pleasing of Christ. We do what we do because we please Christ first. It reminds us what we are to love. Jesus in John 14, 23 said, Jesus, it said, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. He will keep, he will guard, he will guide and protect and proclaim my word and my words. If a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. If we love the Lord, we'll keep his word. If we love the Lord, we will do as he commands. I'm sure that Jonah loved the Lord. But the tension between the Lord and the Ninevites and the mission that God calls him to was contentious. And so... Was there revival or was there conversion or both? Again, I, I mentioned this particular question because of what some people think may have happened. Now, let me just say outright, you know, that not many, many years after this incident, 
with Jonah and the Ninevites. Eventually, Nineveh would be destroyed. The Assyrian, the Assyrians would be destroyed, conquered. So they would say, well, then, then obviously their repentance was shallow and there was no true salvation then. Well, let's look at the text and let's consider some things. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. The word believed there in the Hebrew is the word aman, aman. Believed God. And proclaimed a fast. And put on sackcloth. They were really struck by the message of Jonah. From the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now it's been thought that, you know, the, 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 you know that well, that, that particular culture, you know, if some other god, I mean, they all believed in many gods, and, and sometimes they would kind of believe in the gods of other, other nations, you know, and so... You know, all of a sudden, there was, this is just what they did. You know, here, they hear somebody say there's going to be an overthrow of your, of your people. So, oh, you know what, we're going to go ahead and, you know. But, but, but it's, it's being said as if it's all superficial. They're just always, they, you know, they got sackcloth at hand. You know, well, you know, when there's need, we'll just put the sackcloth on. We'll make some ashes, and then we'll throw it all up in the air, and, and we should be okay. But again, notice what it says. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto Elohim. That's the word for God here. That is not the word for any other God. In the language of the Ninevites. It is the word Elohim, the name Elohim, as it were. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and, and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Who can tell if God, Elohim, will turn and repent? That is a Hebrew name. It is not hard to believe that after one day's preaching under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, that upwards of a million people turn to the one true God. Because this can be considered a genuine evangelical revival, at least from the recorded results. The Ninevites were not just saved from national overthrow. The fact that they believed Elohim suggests that they were saved in a spiritual sense. We're told by the Apostle Paul about the, the father of all them that believe. Who would that be? Who's the father of all them that believe? Abraham. Did anybody say Abraham? You get a gold star. We'll put it right here. Romans 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul said, What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham trusted and believed God, simply believed God. And it was accounted unto him, counted to him for righteousness. Jump down to verse 11 of Romans, 14, of, of Romans 4. And it says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been being uncircumcised. Notice that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. Well, certainly the Assyrians weren't circumcised people. They were the uncircumcised. 
Paul says that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. You're not saved by circumcision. Saved by believing and by trusting with all of your heart. When you go to Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says about Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, it is the very same word, Amon. And he counted it to him for righteousness. When you consider verses 6 through 9 of our text, you would have to ask if there has been in all the annals of revival history an an event that parallels this one. From the greatest to the least, it would appear that all of Nineveh cried out to God. And notice that they do not cry out to Jehovah. That's not the word mentioned or the name mentioned. And this is significant. Jehovah, the YHWH, or Yahweh, or uh, Hashem, the name as holy as it is to the Jewish people. Notice that these Ninevites don't cry out to Jehovah because Jehovah was the covenant name of God that links him with his chosen people. That's not the the name that is used. Their prayers were directed to Elohim. Elohim is the name that speaks of sovereignty, and of creatorship. You read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, Elohim, created the heaven and the earth. This is recognizing that this God is the one true God who created all things. It speaks of his sovereignty over all things, for Elohim is recognized throughout all of the beginnings of creation and the establishment. Of his word. In John 3. I'm, I'm sorry in Jonah 3 verse 10. It says in God Elohim. Saw their works. They turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. I understand that since the Lord is immutable, which means he's unchanging, God never changes. Since the Lord is immutable in his nature and in his will, one might wonder why Jonah wrote that God repented. And that expression is used a few times in the, in the Old Testament. But that expression is an example of a figure of speech that is common in the scriptures. With this literary device, human thoughts and feelings are attributed attributed to God. The only way finite human beings can begin to comprehend the infinite is for God to use what is called anthropomorphisms. It's just a fancy word, you know, to, to, to make, you know, like of the, you know, Anthropos, you know, being, of course, you know, human and the morph is becoming as them. So it's to comprehend the infinite is, is for God to use anthropomorphisms and clothe this person, clothe himself, his thoughts, his ways in a, in a language suitable to our ignorance. Okay, not our ignorance, but our lack of full understanding of God's ways. Well, that's pretty much ignorance. Ignorance on our part. Ignorance of all that God is. We don't know the depth of those things, do we? For the most part, no, we don't. The Lord's sentence against Nineveh was was conditional. It was conditional as Jonah very well knew. We know that because of what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. So we're going to get a quick peek of what we're going to see next time. But it pleased Jonah exceedingly. It displeased, I'm sorry. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. What was he angry at? What was, what was verse 10 again? God saw their works and he repented of the evil that he was going to do upon them. And it displeased Jonah. 
Are we back to square one with Jonah? And he prayed unto the Lord and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and a merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Ah! I knew it. And you know, he certainly didn't tell the Ninevites that, did he? He didn't tell them that. He just says, hey, you're going you're gonna to buy it, man. You guys are going to buy it. 40 days. By the way, the 40 days didn't start until he gave the message. It didn't start in the, in the mouth of the whale. He had to get to Nineveh first. Big sand timer, you know, started when he got there. 40 days of sand. Probably walked through 40 days of sand to get there. But God made his pronouncement. God made his pronouncement in accordance with the principle that is recorded in Jeremiah 18, verse 8. Look at Jeremiah 18, verse 8. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Now again, understand this. God does not change. But he does give warnings so that man will have the opportunity to change. God doesn't change. But he gives us, or man, the opportunity to change. His immutable holiness demands that sin be punished. His equally immutable love, his unchanging love, and his unchanging justice demand that the repentant sinner be forgiven. This forgiveness was extended to Nineveh. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we love. This is the God that loves us with an everlasting love. In spite of everything we are and everything we do, at times, that displeases him. He is the God that forgives. And he's unchanging in his mercies. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. If you go to the next chapter in Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, and I'll close with this. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Superficial revival or conversion? Only God knows, really. Only the Lord knows even our own hearts here today. But I can say that I'm thankful that knowing many of you, knowing where you are with the Lord in the sense of your devotion to him and your love for him and your love for us, we can enjoy the fellowship of the saints in a great and tremendous way. And knowing that the Lord is coming soon, how much more should we have that desire to let people know that Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of men? The Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Be encouraged. Be encouraged to serve the Lord. 
and to tell others about Jesus because he's coming again. He's coming soon. And I hope and pray that each and every one of you loves Jesus with all your heart.